On CGRU 1280 AM, you're listening to Built to Play. I'm Aaron Bali, And I'm Daniel Rosen. Last time on our show. Since I'm at Hippo Harry, no other man will do. So when I talk in a game, and I sound girly, obviously, I get comments about what I must be like. And, you know, you get crude sexual comments. How many times did you do it yesterday? Are you afraid you're doing it too often? It was something that I said in the heat of the moment and it just sort of slipped out. It was not okay. I think it's just that those behaviors are so normalized in gaming's culture that they are not deviant. You know, throwing out a racial slur is not deviant in games culture. We talked toxic masculinity in video games and we're gonna do that again today, but this time our focus will be a little different. In 2014, a game designer was doxxed by her ex-boyfriend. He posted private information about her life and their relationship and then tied it all together with false accusations that this woman must have somehow bribed her way into making her video game a success. Those false accusations drew an existing mob of online harassers who quickly added other targets to their list. Critic Anita Sarkeesian, game designer Brianna Wu, and many others. Not long after, we had a Twitter hashtag to direct all of this harassment, Gamergate. It was a nightmare, but this was not unusual. It just brought to the surface what had always been there. Except this time, people outside of gaming took notice. Though women now represent half the video gaming community, a Pew study this week revealed that gaming is the least welcoming online space for women. Well, I feel like there must be some deeper cultural identification here among the people who are really upset. Some sense that their whole identity is at stake. I think it's arguably more of a terrible thing in Internet culture that this is kind of the final state of a lot of free-floating harassment and anger that's been going around for years. Four years after Gamergate, Donald Trump is president of the United States, and he nominates Brett Kavanaugh to the U.S. Supreme Court. By the time we're recording, he's been confirmed. But in September 2018, Christine Blasey Ford accused Kavanaugh of sexual assault. The incident she describes is horrific. A man tried to force himself on her, rip off her clothing, and put a hand over her mouth as she screamed. She says there was another man in the room, laughing as the incident went down. Ford identifies him as Kavanaugh's close friend, Mark Judge. Now, I know even less about U.S. politics than I do about video games, but Judge is important to this shaggy dog story. Mike Futter at Variety pointed out that in the middle of Gamergate, Judge wrote two critical articles of feminist critic Anita Sarkeesian. In one of them, he says that she is trying to ban male fantasies. Here's one line. So when a guy plays video games... They like to fantasize about enduring hardships and making it through difficult obstacles to be rewarded at the end or sooner with the attention of a gorgeous, sexy woman. And this is a problem? I mean, yeah. I mean, that is a problem. You're literally objectifying women. But Judge doesn't care about that. He calls her a social justice warrior and that these complaints are just virtue signaling. Both of these terms were used by Gamergate trolls to demean people who try to argue against them. Today, they're used by far-right trolls to insult people who don't share their worldview. And you look around, and Brett Kavanaugh is a U.S. Supreme Court justice, and Donald Trump is president. All of which to say, games can give us a unique vision into the future. 
Things like Gamergate are representative of a much bigger societal struggle, one where racism and sexism have always been lurking just below the surface. So today, we're following up on our episode about toxic masculinity by asking, what can we do to fix this? Now, this episode is understandable on its own, but you'll probably get more out of it if you listen to our two-part project with Radio Free Krypton, A Crisis of Toxic Nerds. But let's roll back a bit. Like Gamergate happens, you're going to be a woman working at that company or, you know, even as someone in game studies, you know, I was like looking at all my male colleagues thinking, are any of you Gamergaters? And I think every woman in the games industry is looking at all her male colleagues like, are, you know, who who in here is threatening to kill me? That's Emma Vossen. She's a postdoctoral fellow at York University in Toronto. She studies gender and gaming. We talked to her last time about toxic masculinity, but we also wanted to learn how the industry itself makes it harder for marginalized people to participate. I think right now we just have these hardcore gamers running these games companies and expecting all their employees to act a certain way. And it's a whole other level of problem because at that point, it's like women are just being denied the opportunity to play games. They're being the opportunity to make money and to make these games that they love. So it's it's a really complex. We probably do a whole other <laughs> show just on that issue. Well, Emma, uh, we're going to give it our best shot. One answer to this is if there were more diverse people at video games companies, they might be able to better address those challenges. So here's an example for why that's a problem. In 2016, the International Game Development Association found that women make up only 21% of the industry. That's less than a quarter of all employees. Meanwhile, more than three quarters identified themselves as white. So what's going on here? Well, Emma found that there's a leaky pipeline that prevents marginalized people from gaining the right skills before they can even be hired. In general, in industry companies, people will use this term. They'll say that the games industry has a quote-unquote leaky pipeline where, um, you know, there should be a direct pipeline between, like, you love games, so you go to school to study games, so you get a job as a games company, so you move up at that games company. Um, But it's not a direct pipeline because, you know, women are leaking out of it all the time. And I think that uh, one place that women are leaking out of that pipeline hardcore um, is actually within games education. I taught games in a lot of different programs, and I know a lot of other women who teach games and programs. And you see the same sort of thing over and over where um, these programs exist within games culture. The same toxic behaviors exist. So women are dropping out of these programs. They're being sexually harassed and they're being forced to leave these programs. I think that's where we're losing a lot of women. Obviously, we have that same thing happening in the industry. But I think also we need to not forget about the women who don't even get to the industry. And we need not forget about the women who don't even get to game school. You know, women who don't feel like they're gamer enough to study video games or to, to go to school to make video games. I think we're just losing women every step of the way and we need to figure out how to plug those holes. It's almost like by the time you even get to employment, like there's so, been so much loss along the way that it's almost it's it's almost besides the point. Yeah, like you you had to work so hard just to get your first job in the games industry. And that's why, you know, a lot of studies show that um, a lot of people burn out of the games industry in their first five years, period. Um, let alone uh, the additional complications that are there for women and especially women of color. I do think, and I'm just going to like let my politics show for a moment here, but I do think unionization is the first step to solving so many of these problems, gendered or otherwise. I think a lot of these problems um, that women and other employees face are uh, workers' rights problems. And I think that uh, games industry unionization is like a hot topic right now. Um, a lot of people are against it, and I am 100% for it. And I think uh, it is it is 
probably the first and most important step to solving so many of the problems we've uh, talked about today. That idea of a leaky pipeline sent us to Dr. Kishana Gray. She's a researcher like Emma who studies how the media influences the public and how communities function. Dr. Kishana Gray doesn't have all the answers to how we can fix things, but she says that the first thing we can do is to genuinely acknowledge that we have a problem. And that includes all the little things that we take for granted. Take, for example, something really simple reporting a harasser on Xbox Live. Playing um, Friday the 13th, um, you know, it was was during that era of make Crystal Lake great again, you know, so these were spaces where gamers would enter the space and go after the women characters and the characters of color, and so whoever was Jason would just kill them and kind of leave everybody else alone. It was really stupid. We're making Crystal Lake great again. We're about to clean your ass. About to get deported, baby. About to get deported. You know, to kill everybody that isn't white. Here's a, here's a Latina chick. That's right. <laughs> I remember getting banned because the person who was Jason and that kept killing me kept calling me the N word in the space, right? And so, you know, I, I asked him, I was like, well, why are you calling me the N word? You know, he didn't respond. So I sent him a, a text within the system asking why he was calling me the n-word he didn't respond but what he did he reported me and said i was violating the terms of service and so whenever the moderators or the bots or the algorithm whatever system that uh, xbox employs to kind of figure out if this is happening or not you know of course they did see that i utilized you know the n-word um and so i got banned however you know there's if there's not a person behind that, that enforcement, there was no way for them to get a context of my use of the N-word. You know, there wasn't malintention with my use of it. I was asking why I was being called that. So, you know, that situation got escalated and I was eventually uh, unbanned. But I think that kind of showed like the issue um, of moderation and it shows the issue of utilizing algorithms to kind of serve as as enforcement. There are a lot of users. There are a lot of people within these spaces and there's not like a foolproof plan to have to do something with. So I wish that there was like a better system for me to say, hey, don't ban me. This is actually what happened. And so it took me going off on like a Twitter rant and going off on on Facebook, you know, about the situation for something for it to be escalated. I'm thinking about like the, even the old school complaint system in Xbox Live. There was not a place for you to say, hey, I am experiencing sex, sexism or racism it was lumped into other categories. So if somebody, you know, actually made those categories like better developed, then somebody could actually say, I'm experiencing sexism. Um, I was just called bitch or I'm experiencing racism. Somebody just called me in the space. You know, I think that that's something that has to happen. I'm not sure if they're ready to to receive that level of, of reports yet. I don't know if they if they want to see it. So acknowledging you have a problem means taking a serious look at the whole system and each piece that makes it up. But it's also realizing that there's a context to each piece. That reporting issue may not be monumental in isolation, but it's happening to marginalized players all over North America. Plus, there's the racist jokes and the expectation that they're okay to say. Not to mention trolls who say folks are making a big deal out of nothing. That this is all somehow a political game. All of which is untrue, though there's definitely a politics to it. Here's our conversation with Kashana Gray. She's currently an assistant professor at the University of Illinois at Chicago. I remember after Gamergate happened, um, <clears throat> there were a lot of um, statements issued by a lot of these companies. 
you know, they said, you know, hate has no home here, you know, not all men, um, we don't condone the actions and activities or, you know, the behaviors of these folks. So you had a range of statements that these companies were issuing to show that they um, were against what was happening with Gamergate, right? I push back against that narrative. I may have been in a minority with that, but I push back and I wanted these companies to highlight how they have been complicit in creating a culture that has devalued women and other minorities within gaming, right? Think about employment practices. If we look at the number of people who are making games and creating games who are game developers, that industry still looks primarily white and primarily male. So the hiring practices show that you're not valuing diversity. It shows that you're not valuing valuing women's perspectives or people of color. Um, if you look at, you know, when people are, when people do get these jobs, right, and they're inside these companies or they're inside these teams, a lot of these folks are relegated to the margins making games for girls or making content, you know, for urban audiences. I think that whenever you don't have uh, diverse voices at the table making major decisions, that lets you know um, who they value and who they who they don't value. So you render, you know, a lot of these populations powerless whenever you don't have them at the table, whenever they whenever they don't have a voice, whenever they're not included in decision making. Um, you marginalize them when you continue to show or you continue to relegate women to hypersexualized narratives or hypersexualized positions. You render uh, minority characters, you know, you marginalize them, you know, whenever you just have, you know, your most popular black character is a gangster from the hood. Um, that, that shows the devaluation process, you know, not, not only in who they hire, but the content, you know, that, that gets deployed by a lot of these, by these companies as well. And so I think it's important that we highlight that and that we push back on that. A lot of folks have pushed back against me, you know, in saying, well, if the applicant pool isn't diverse, there's no way to get folks. Right. And so I agree with that. And so we have to think about why these uh, applicant pools aren't diverse. We can go back into the schools. There are a whole host of hidden curriculums that that move women outside of math and science and computer science and engineering, you know, from the cultures of not accepting, you know, women's perspective or thinking that women don't belong in math or engineering or science or any of the STEM fields. When we think about the experiences of of a lot of people of color, you know, they, their schools don't have resources, you know, some of the schools don't even have like AP chemistry or math, you know, so you have to think about the unequal distribution of resources and that reduces like the number of folks who, who would even go into college and major in like STEM fields. And that reduces the number of people who you have um, as applicants in, in these job pools. But you even have to think for the folks who make it, in the face of all this, these oppressions, structural inequalities, all the barriers, um, the leaky pipeline through STEM, even think about the few folks who make it, then you, you're putting them up against impossible standards when you expect all of them to have like to do a postdoc at MIT and have an internship at Facebook. But I, I think it's, it's just, it's very important that we show that we don't actually value these populations and value these different groups of folks because our actions don't show that we value them. 
Because if we actually did value them, we'll be like, okay, you didn't do so well on the ACT. You didn't go to the top schools. You know, you got your engineering degree from a, from, from a marginal school, but we're still going to take a chance on you. We want to know what you're going to create. And who knows? You might create the next Black Panther. You might have the next Space Jam 2 idea. You know, I think it's really important that we get out of this mindset, especially of not having um, a diverse applicant pool and think about what we can do to diversify it. You know, people have different paths to tech industries. And I think we need to start to dismantle the barriers and acknowledge the different traje- trajectories that people might have. I wanted to kind of look at like two recent high profile examples of this stuff kind of coming to before. So recently we had the scandal at Riot. And then before that, we had the ArenaNet incident, uh, writer on Guild Wars 2, um, Jessica Price, was fired because of uh, an interaction she had with, uh, Guild, with a Guild Wars 2 community member. What failed structurally within these companies that led to women, in the case of Riot, being sexually harassed, diminished, and, and kind of pushed aside, and in the ArenaNet, just straight up fired? What happened there that, that kind of led to that happening? I don't know enough specifically to be able to speak to each one, but I can speak generally and I can speak broadly because I know exactly what happened. The culture of these places that see women as objects that don't value women, don't value their perspective. You know, they shouldn't speak up. They shouldn't speak out. Or if they do, then they are perceived to be threats to the male dominated, you know, spaces and establishments. And I think a lot of women go into these spaces thinking that, Uh, You know, like the little diversity statements that they put out to say that they're welcoming and inclusive, think that these little diversity statements are going to be enough and say, hey, they do things differently. When you have to remember, these are individuals, these are men who are invested in their identities, who are invested in their privileges, and they're going to hold on to them because they think that incorporating and including women into these spaces is taking something away from them. There, there's so many conversations that are that are happening right now where women have dared speak out, thinking about Serena Williams, thinking about Dr. Ford. And I think it's important that we include gaming and tech um, within like a lar- larger microcosm of just, you know, this male dominated reality of male fantasies, of male male privilege, in that we realize that, you know, we insert women and think that incorporating women is changing these these cultures. It's not. Um, and I, I think it's important that we that we start to change the culture of these places. And you're not going to do that just by adding women. You know, there's this perspective in, in feminism that if you add women and stir, then everything's OK. They're not going to be they're not going to jail smoothly because either what's going to happen is that women are just going to assimilate to the sexist practices of these industries or whatever organization that they're a part of, or they're not going to jail at all. And what's going to happen is a Jessica Price are going to be ousted, you know, altogether. And so I think it's really important that we check and challenge, you know, the, the, the culture of these places where we don't just say, well, these are boys being boys because we go from boys being boys to just men being men. And we never hold folks like accountable. We never hold men accountable for their behaviors and their actions. Whereas we hold women above reproach for their actions as the examples of, of like Serena Williams, you know, showed us. So I think it's really important that we go beyond just looking at these different examples and look at it as like a larger culture. One of the things you're describing there is this overriding sense as part of the gaming culture of, of a kind of white male victimhood. How do you even respond to something like that, that somehow inserting women into, or somehow building a culture where women are accepted, where marginalized folks are generally more expect, accepted, comes at the expense somehow of, of white men? Yeah, so we've adopted like this myth of scarcity 
somewhere along the American dream. I don't know. I don't know where it was about that. But the myth, myth of scarcity basically says that there's like a limited number of resources and they are divvied up. They're distributed kind of like a, kind of like a pie. And so everybody has a slice, right? And so that pie was generally sliced and divided up among elite white men, right? Smaller slice went to maybe poor white men, you know, even fewer slices, you know, went to maybe white women, maybe. But anyway, what never happened was a conversation that basically said that there is actually no pie at all. We never had a conversation that just said that this myth of scarcity is just associated with this capitalist kind of idea that, you know, there's going to be a few people who are going to, at the top, they're going to hoard and hold all the things, and then they're going to give us scraps to kind of fight over, right? So we, you know, you'll throw a little scraps, you know, to, to like the women over there, all the women have to fight, or the, you know, the people of color are fighting, you know, amongst themselves over a few resources over there. And then we never look at the larger structure that has actually just given us pennies and has hoarded the rest for themselves, right? So in actuality, like I said, you know, it's not a pie that has like a, a limited number of, of pieces. So you have the anxieties of these white males, not even elite white males. So not, I'm not even talking about like, you know, the 1%. I'm talking about like ones that, that a lot of critical race scholars would maybe call like the overseer. Um, so this, this concept of overseer was the person that was put onto the plant, plantation to kind of oversee the slaves, right? So he didn't own any land. He didn't own any plantation, but he was given a little bit of power. And that little bit of power that he was given by the elite white men um, were the power over people's bodies, people of color, over black bodies, right? And so we have kind of refashioned and repurposed the same idea in, in thinking about, you know, one another as, as marginalized people. You know, the, the people who are at the top are these the shareholders, the, these companies, you know, these few people who are at the top and who have like a certain number of like positions, maybe they have like a certain number of game titles that they want released. And, you know, they, they can't diversify all of them because they want to appease, you know, the people who are at the top of the hierarchy, you know, white men. And so we're fighting over scraps. So a lot of white, so many white men feel that they have to share their pie with women with first off with their women with other white women they have to share it with with men of color they have to share it with women of color they have to share it with immigrant populations and so their anxieties are growing because they're like well what's left for me i don't have anything left if i had to give all of my pie to these black men to these brown men to these immigrant populations if i had to give all of my piece of pie to to women who kept asking for more things then there's nothing left for me so I, I think it's important that we understand the fears and anxieties of this population who's always been catered to, who's always been pandered to, who's always been accommodated for. And so in their mind, they're thinking that they have to give up their the little bit of power that they may have in these spaces to make space for everybody else when that's not the case at all. So I think it's important for us to look up. Look up at capitalism, look up at these capitalist structures, look up at these um, these entities that are creating the, these anxieties around folks and creating hardships for us marginalized folks because these white men, you know, think that they're losing 
access, losing opportunities, losing out on things, when in actuality, they're not losing out on anything at all. Because think about diversity hires. A lot of people don't like diversity hires because they feel like that these diversity hires are taking away from the positions that would have gone to like a white man, right? Whereas if you look at a structure of an organization, a lot of these diversity hires is just is extra money that has been allotted because these companies don't want to take away from the white men who, who often complain about what's happening to them. So these companies have found, you know, it's like, you know, target of opportunity hires, diversity hires. There's another pot of money that has been found somewhere to diversify and to bring in like women or to bring in people of color. That's one of the conversations that doesn't get had. So I think a lot of these companies need to have tough conversations about and, and telling all the folks like, hey, diversity is in the interest of all of us. We need to create inclusive environments. You know, we're losing our footing. You know, we're not competing as well on a global scale with these other countries. You know, we have to diversify um, if we if we want to survive. I know that's like in a nutshell. I just gave you like a 16-week course <laughs> in a nutshell. So hopefully that's clear and hopefully that, that makes sense. I mean, what, what you're describing with that structure of basically where you have this... Um you have kind of a highly privileged class of white elites and then below them white men that are slightly less privileged. And then using that to think they, they guard their position against anyone who try to take whatever benefits they have away. That sounds like a general descriptor of, of what you're seeing with like America politically, what you're seeing with a lot of the world socially. I feel like sometimes we look at gaming as this kind of unique or especially within the culture as this weird, unique space. And how does how do when we have these conversations do they need to be to fit into this larger understanding of both how how the world works and also like how we fit into that that is yes first off you're spot on you're exactly right and i think that's one of the things that um that me and david leonard really tried to highlight in the the woke gaming book um, in it, you know, we talked about the article, um, the artist, I mean, the author, it slips my mind right now, but he likened, um, what was happening, you know, with Gamergate to, you know, what was happening politically, uh, you know, with the rise of the alt-right and the election of Donald Trump, you know, gaming kind of gave us like a precursor of what would happen, you know, when, when, um, white men's anxieties is growing and then what the backlashes results in. I think it's important to acknowledge how gaming, of course, there are some unique aspects to gaming. There are some unique things to the tech industry. There are some unique things to politics. You know, they have different kind of historical trajectories. But I think it's important to, to recognize that they're a part of a, a larger ecology that, you know, just as you said, you know, a lot of them have, you know, we have particular roots in white supremacy, in white ownership, in white investment. Um, and I think it's important to recognize, you know, the paths that they've taken uh, to maintain that white supremacy, if you will. And I don't say I don't mean white supremacy like KKK white supremacy. I just mean owned and controlled by corporate white elites. Right. Um, and I think that gaming is like a microcosm of these larger structures that are happening like all around gaming. But I think it's more visible. You know, it's more visible because it's I mean, it's a, the number one entertainment outlet right now. You know, gaming is, you know, these are these are huge billion dollar industries. Um, you know, they they generate, you know, attention. They have so many they have millions of users. Um, and I think that it's important to recognize the accessible platform that gaming has. A lot of people feel removed from like the political arena. You know, a lot of people feel like 
you know, they would never run for office or they don't have access to, you know, their local, you know, politicians. But we all feel complicit in gaming. We are a part of gaming. We can produce content for gaming. We can, I can go and create a YouTube channel now and upload like all my streams. Um, so I think that it's important that we look at the uniqueness of gaming because of the potential that it has to reach this large demographic of people, to reach a large audience, and to see how impressionable, you know, even gaming is on culture, on, on society, more so than, than politics does. You know, like, like, for instance, you know, I can, I can, sometimes I can tell you more of what's happening, like within gaming culture than I can our political arena. And I think that, that it's important that we, we look at gaming for that potential to have that power to influence the direction of things. And I think that, you know, we, what we were highlighting in that opening chapter of the book is, is just that, how gaming can kind of, uh, it shows us like just what the precursor could be if something is happening you know, politically and socially in our world, it's happening in gaming. And I think we need to pay more attention to it because there's still so much stigma around it or a lot of people think it's just children or it's just child's play and they, they aren't taking it seriously enough for having power um, and potential to influence, you know, people like in a major way. I'm thinking about, you know, how Discord is often used to like recruit, you know, folks for a lot of these like these hate groups now, you know, they use gaming to do that. You know, whereas, you know, traditionally, you know, people may meet at the bar um, and say, hey, you want to join my hate group? Yeah, I'll join your hate group. Now people are doing it in gaming now. And so I think that it, it can't be ignored because we're, we're ignoring the, the power and the potential that it has to really influence and shape, you know, society in, in major ways. Dr. Kishana Gray. She is currently an assistant professor at University of Illinois at Chicago. If you want to learn more about the issues discussed in this interview, she gave us a whole selection of articles and books for people to look into. They will be listed on our episode page. Things are definitely different since Gamergate. It's hard to call it progress, and we are definitely not past these issues, but things are changing. Radio Free Krypton is a show about comic books, and they were the other half of our fundraising episode. Their episode was looking at similar conservative reactions in comic books, called Comicsgate. And on their episode, they had a guest who I think is really worth hearing in this context. His name is Benjamin Wu, and he wrote a book about geek communities called Getting a Life. He concludes that the reason we're fighting is because the doors are, in fact, opening to marginalized people, however slowly. We can get so focused on the backlash sometimes, and, and we do need to care very deeply about the ways that um, that these practices are, are hurting people and, and, uh, and causing a great deal of distress. Um, but I think that we should remember that a backlash doesn't happen without something positive to kick it off, right? As long as we keep this, uh, this conversation kind of forward, forward looking, and uh, try to keep our eyes on um, all of the, you know, the great stuff that's happening uh, around more and more uh, voices being brought, uh, brought out in uh, all of these fields. I think that's the, that's the real positive story. Um, and it would be nice if we could can keep remembering that even as we try to, to cope with the, the negative side of the story. This is what I often tell my children. You know, sometimes we have to redirect our focus, right? And so I have to find 
the the highlights. I have to find the wins. I have to look for the spaces um, of, of progress and growth, and I have to elevate and highlight. I'm thinking about Momo Pixel and the game Herna. You know, it's a very simple game where, you know, you have a black woman that's swatting away white hands, you know, from, from touching her hair. That resonated with, with black women so much, you know, so... I think we've got like these different platforms now where people can create, you know, their own content and create it for, for their, for their audience in mind. You know, they don't have to think about, you know, these, these companies and what the company's desires are. Um, you know, would, would a game like hair and ever be, um, released by like a big, big company? Probably not. But I think that's the beauty of, you know, people learning these skill sets, learning to code, learning to develop and just doing it anyway. You know, you don't have to have the approval of a major company. You don't have to have like a big budget. You know, people are receptive, um, to different ways of engaging with these games. And I think that's the beautiful part of it. So what I had to do, you know, I just had to reframe my focus and um, not ignore the negative stuff, not ignore the toxic stuff, but just to make sure that I centered the positive, um, you know, make sure that I privileged, you know, some of the things that we might not, might not traditionally, traditionally look for or might not traditionally see. So they're there. I'm, I'm reframing my focus. So, special thanks to Emma Vossen, Dr. Kashana Gray, and of course, the guys at Radio Free Krypton for all their help and for providing us with a little tidbit of audio that I, I really enjoyed from their episode. If you want to find out more about Radio Free Krypton or look at Dr. Kashana Gray's new book, Woke Gaming, uh, you can look at our show notes on our website once that's up. Anyway, thanks again to everyone. You're listening to Built to Play. I'm Armin Bali, And I'm Daniel Rosen. So I want to wrap up this episode by taking our mind off the heavy stuff and going to the world of eSports. Electronic sports, cyber athletics, digital physical activity. <laughs> Dan, a few weeks back, you sent me, actually, this was back in August, I think. Yeah. Uh, you sent me a video of a young man giving a younger young man a piss-poor handshake um, at the International. That's the big Dota 2 annual tournament. Um, it, all you got to know about Dota 2, it's a big sport thing. It's, it's, a, it's a video game that people play, and if you win the World Championship, the International, you will make millions of dollars. It, there's a lot at stake here. But i got to be honest, when you sent me that video, it took me a really long time to even see what was going on there. So I'm going to pull that up, and I want you to kind of tell me what I should be seeing there in that moment. So describe so, so kind of what's going on. You are looking at two teams kind of walking towards each other on stage, Evil Geniuses and OG. Uh, and you are seeing two players hit, kind of come at each other, the second player in one line, the first in another, fly and no tail. And instead of shaking hands, they sort of grab each other's hands and shove it into each other's stomachs. It seems like a bad way to go about doing a handshake. And certainly not a particularly sportsmanlike way to do a handshake. No, I mean, like the, it reminds me of... Um... When I was in elementary school and on a very bad soccer team and I shook a player's hand and said, bad game, and then ran off and the ref called me out for being a, a little um, Yeah. So, okay, why why was that? Why did that handshake happen? What happened between these two players, between these two teams that made this almost inevitability? So what you have to know about Fly and No-Tail is that they used to be, at least, again, from the outside looking in, best buddies. They were two players who had come up together in a game called Heroes of New Earth, which is a sort of one of the many several attempted follow-ups to Dota from other companies. 
um, before Dota 2 and League of Legends really ate everybody else's lunch. Uh, they came up together, they played together, and they were on a team together for a long time until they got broken up by the fact that when you don't win a TI, your team is going to break up. And they got they had this happen to them, and they got on different teams, and they really wanted to play together, and they were tired of this idea that teams got broken up every time they didn't win TI. So they founded OG with this idea that we're going to build this team together. We're going to make you know make it a team about our friends, and we're going to if we stick together, we're eventually going to win because the whole thing is that the longer we stick together, the better we'll get. OG won while they were together in their initial state. Eh, well, okay, while Fly and No Tail were headlining EG, OG. They won four majors. Those were uh, a tournament, basically the tournaments right underneath the international in terms of prestige, especially back then when there were only, I think, three majors a year and the international. They won four in two years. So they, they were like on a successful streak. They were, they were to, an unbelievably good team. They were making things work. And But the problem was every time they made it to the international, they kind of shot the bed. They lost to – they would lose to teams they weren't supposed to lose to, like TNC. They would just have bad performances, and it wasn't looking good. This season starts, and OG is not doing great. In fact, they're not really doing well at any of the majors this year, where there were significantly more than three a year. They just weren't doing well at all. And they didn't weren't going to make – it didn't look like they were going to have enough points through placing well at majors to qualify for the international. They were going to have to go through the open qualifier. Right. One day, Evil Geniuses, a, comp- a competing team, North American based, uh, one of kind of historically Dota's best North American teams, if not one of their best teams in general, international champions, announced that they had signed Fly and S4, who is another player for OG. This seemed crazy because, again, the whole foundation of OG was that they weren't going to break up. They would might shift some players here and there for priorities, but they were going to stick together as much as possible. And in fact, over their second and third years, they're one of the only teams to return to international with an almost identical lineup. So when you say like a, that, players are being poached here. Like, what are we, what is the rate of kind of like a team wins and then disappear? Um, so it's rare for a team to win and then break up. Often, when a team will does very well, they will stick together as much as possible. Uh, in fact, we've seen more and more Dota teams try to stick together longer after OG kind of proved that you can succeed like that. Right. But when you fail. Teams tend to collapse. Right. Um, an example of this is, um, oh goodness, uh, Alliance right. was the TI3 winning team. They didn't do well at TI4. They collapsed. They eventually reformed the same team for TI6, I believe, and then they collapse again. And this happens. When a team doesn't do well, they fall apart. Um, you've seen this in a lot of different different teams and sometimes even winning teams eg after winning ti5 i believe dump a player named owie a canadian player owie 2000 they drop him for another player after they win the international right the biggest tournament in the world they all they won millions of dollars to get rid of this guy we can upgrade so it's like you end up in this in this situation where like it's really if you screw up it's really hard to keep whatever Whatever dynamics you've built together. Exactly. And and some teams also are really in it. They're, you know, I don't want to say they're moneyballing it, but they want the best players possible. If right. this player is like this player but better, we're going to get that player. So they're, so now Fly and S4 have gone to EG. Yeah. That team also has to go through the open qualifier due to yeah. various rules about your teams having to stick together to get an automatic invite yeah. after a certain point. Um they have to go through open qualifiers, but they look incredible now. They have right. some great play. They already had great players. They have even more great players. Things are looking up for EG. OG, on the other hand, don't have a full team of five. Um, nobody knows who their next two are going to be. And they also have to go to the open qualifiers when they were already looking not that great. Right. 
they make it to the open qualifiers. They pick up, they bring back, they, they've already brought back a guy named, I believe, Anna. I don't actually know if he was playing with them at TI. But Anna was a guy who played for them a while back. He had left to go to school. He came back for a bit. They bring up a guy called Thompson, who is a very little known, I believe, Finnish player who was incredible on ladder but had never played a tournament in his life. Right. And they bring their coach, Mad, Seb, uh, they bring Seb from the coach onto the lineup. He's a former pro. <laughs> he's the coach. He's here. They make the open qualifiers, and going to TI, everyone thinks, well, OG are the worst team at this tournament. Right. EG are one of the best, top four, top three, you know, contenders for the crown. But OG, 18 out of 18th. Like, 18th right. out of 18. Worst team in the in the system. And they do it. They go further and further and further, and they so, play like- EG. Can you, can you give me an idea of like how this is progressing through the rounds. Like first round, they first get... time they play the group stage, yeah. and they do well in the group stage. In fact, they lose to EG in the group stage. Right. Um, but the group stage determines your seeding into the playoff bracket, right. and they get seeded into the winner side of the bracket, which means they get an extra chance to lose, or the upper bracket, as they call it in Dota. Um, and their round one opponent, relatively weak opponent, they beat them. Right. Round two opponent is Evil Geniuses. Okay. And everyone's like, wow. Or maybe it's not their round two. Maybe it's their round three. Either way. Yeah. A very, I think it's actually their round three opponent. Their, their round one opponent, okay. Round two opponent, I think they had, I cannot remember who they had. It might have been Virtus Pro. It might have been Team Liquid. It was a strong team. Yeah. And they beat them. And everyone's like, wow, just I can't believe it. Now it's now EG is next. Yeah. And nobody thought it was you would make it this far. And they get to EG, and they win. Just to kind of remind everyone about like the play, the people who are involved here. So who is currently on OG? OG, we have No Tail, who yeah. is now their, essentially their leader. Right. Um, who was always kind of their leader, and Fly, who was OG's team captain, was the guy who made all their strategies and drafted everything for them, is now leading EG as their team captain. Right. So these two guys are facing off head-to-head, essentially. It's a 5v5 game, but their personalities are at the fore in this fight. Because, like, OG had that specific mission of, like, we're going to keep this team together. Yeah. The other guy then just, the other founder kind of just decided to dip. Ooh, yeah. How do they? How had they they felt about that coming out of that that moment where you're like? I mean, you can't feel good, yeah. right? Like I, I, they don't want to talk about what happened. They're it's probably still raw for them. I'm sure there's some stuff they're not allowed to say, right? Um, but you can't feel good, right? Yeah. This whole they, these are guys who played together for two and a half, three years, and all of a sudden it's gone, right. right? All for a shot at a crown that they all agreed that they could eventually get working together. They they're going into this the this match against th- evil geniuses, right? Yeah, the best of three. It goes one-to-one, everything's on the line, and OG wins. Yeah. And the two of them come out of their booths and go for the hand. And everybody's going to shake hands. Everybody always shakes hands at the match. The two teams walk up to their handshake, 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 cheer, offstage, next match. Instead, Fly and No-Tail hit each other and just Fly look like doesn't even look him in the eyes, just right into his, just shoves his hand right into oh his chest God. and walks right past him. Puts his hand over over Seb, you know, the former coach, yeah. and they walk off into the next round where they beat PSG LGD, yeah. who are a very good team. PSG LGD goes into the lower bracket, they defeat Evil Geniuses, come back to play OG in the finals where they play a full five-game insane series that OG wins. <laughs> After going from the 18th worst team in the, in you know, worst team, they get betrayed, Least, yeah. worst team in the, in the tournament, play their rivals, beat their rivals, beat the best team, beat the best team again for the first time they ever won the International. Right. And are now the best team in the world. <laughs> and, of course, they didn't break up after they won. They managed to keep it together? They kept it together. How did they, So, like, people are watching this happen. Yeah. What was what was the, the community reaction to this? You, I mean, you can hear the crowd. If you watch the video for yourself, radio listener, yeah. podcast listener, you can you can hear the crowd just, you know, 
go whoa when this happens. Everyone was waiting for this to happen. Everyone was waiting for this match, this grudge match. And I, I don't know how many people were like, I, you know, if you're cheering for the underdog, you're cheering for OG. And it's a satisfying moment to see him just, you know, all of the all of whatever happened. Right. All of the suffering you made us endure one, you know, in one it goes away in one handshake doesn't go away. Right. It's just yeah. represented. And, it comes and this kind of like symbolic moment for yeah. the two teams. And the community, you know, eats it up, right? It's a kind of personality moment that you can only get when the stakes are this high. And also you have this history. Like these, yeah. this thing has been going on to some extent. Like when did when did OG get founded again? OG was founded in 2015, I believe. So this has been a three-year progression from yeah. like these two guys working together to them moving apart to then this handshake. And then OG winning, which is kind of crazy. Like – are there any lessons that other teams are taking kind of from I mean, their win? I think we have seen over the last couple of years. I'm not a Dota expert. I will be the first to say I'm not a Dota expert. I'm yeah. sure I got plenty of years wrong in yeah. just talking. They might have found the 2016. I honestly don't remember. I've written a lot of videos about this subject that you can watch uh, <laughs> on YouTube, the Scorey's Worst YouTube channel, if I'm allowed to show for my own job. Yeah. Oh, totally. Um, you can watch those, and I, those are all fact-checked and accurate, I promise you. <laughs> but in the meantime, where, while you're here and listening, you have seen, I think, a lot of teams as far as I can understand it, start to stick together more. Team Liquid has been very successful in sticking together and did very well. Obviously, they won TI last year and did very and like world, world favorites to go this year. VP has stuck together for a very long time and are continuing to stick together. A lot of the Chinese teams are sticking together in ways they didn't used to, which is really interesting. Um, I think you're definitely seeing more and more teams stick together. I don't know that's as a result of this win, but it's certainly that philosophy was sort of permeating through Dota, and OG were one of the first to kind of jump on that bandwagon. Now, to be fair, even they lost like two or three players between their first and second season. Right. And their roster obviously now looks very different after this departure, but a lot of the core players in that organization have stayed the same. Right. Well, thank you for going through that, and hopefully we'll check in more often with uh, just fun stuff that's happening in in the world of electronic media. Cyber athletics, please. All right, from CGRU, this has been Built to Play. I'm Armin Bali, And I'm Daniel Rosen. You can follow us on Twitter at Built to Play or visit our website, builttoplay.ca. You can also find us on Facebook. But hey, if you really like the show, be sure to tell a friend or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or literally anywhere that does reviews. It can really help us out. If you like today's show, you can send us an email at builtplayshow at gmail.com. It would be great to hear from you. You can follow me personally at Flarkon. That's F-L-A-R-K-C-O-N. And I'm at Daniel underscore Rosen. And remember, cyber athletics will destroy us all. Thank you so much for listening.